You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio here on America's Web Radio. I am so excited to have you with us this morning because we have a very rare opportunity to talk with a police sergeant who works in the Mission District of San Francisco. And for those of you who do not know, the Mission District is not the safest of places, and San Francisco, who you might know, is having problems with homelessness, cleanliness, and public substance use, to say the least. So on top of that, I think the passage of Proposition 47 about a year and a half ago um, that makes stealing anything below $950 a misdemeanor, I think that's probably a problem. And I think that means that thieves face no pursuit and no punishment because of this law that was passed. So shoplifting is no longer a felony, and it carries no potential for a prison sentence. And perhaps our guest will help us with the understanding of how all of this affects his job. That addressed the topic of criminals and other local and state challenges, but much more important to me is the topic of police safety. And honestly, listeners, I am appalled each time I read or hear about a random shooting of law enforcement. And I fear for the protectors of law and order. And I wonder if there will ever come a time when other occupations will be much more enticing than law enforcement due to the ever-growing dangers that come with the job. What would we do without law enforcement? Our honored guest is not only a street patrolling sergeant with the San Francisco Police Department, but he is an award-winning author of the book entitled 400 Things Cops Know. And I'm going to buy that book because I'm sure that there's 400 things I don't know. Um, So it was nominated for the Agatha Award and won the 2015 Silver, I'm hoping I pronounced this right, Falchion Award for Best Nonfiction Crime Reference. Here are some of the reviews on our guest book, and I'm quoting. So author Lee Childs thought this book to be, quote, truly excellent. And the Wall Street Journal deemed it to be the, quote, new Bible for crime writers. Our guest recently released his second book, and it's called Policecraft, and I cannot wait to discuss these books with him. Sergeant Adam Plantinka, I hope I pronounced that right, Adam, worked as a Milwaukee police officer from 2001 to 2008, and as I mentioned, he is now doing street patrol in the Mission District of San Francisco. Sergeant Plantinka, it is an honor to have you with us this morning, and thank you for your service. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, my gosh, it's just such an honor. I have so many questions I want to ask you. So first of all, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with police protocol, but I'm not. And I have historically referred to all law enforcement as police officers, but you are a sergeant. 
And would you explain right. the difference between a police officer and a police sergeant for our listeners and educate us a bit about how we can tell the difference between official ranks? Well, sure. Well, uh, police officers uh, make up the backbone of any police department. That's the majority of cops are police officers, and they're on the streets taking assignments and responding to calls. Um, but the sort of the first-line supervisor is called a sergeant, and then you kind of go up the ranks to lieutenant and captain and so forth. And usually the easiest way to tell is uh, sergeants tend to have an insignia on their uniform. It looks kind of like the chevron um, symbol. And then uh, as you go up the ranks, uh, lieutenants tend to have bars on their collar. And, um, so you just kind of have to look for, uh, for some, of the, <laughs> some of the ornamental jewelry of the profession. But I so have to call the police... <laughs> If you call the police and someone shows up at your door, it's going to be a police officer because they're uh, they're doing the brunt of the work. Okay, so you kind of have to scan the uniform to see who yeah. you're talking to. Okay. That's right. <laughs> All right, I hope I can do that because I'm totally not familiar with this, although I do have um, two children um, in the Navy. So I, I don't even scan their uniforms because it's too much for me to figure out. <laughs> Now, um, can I call you Adam, Sergeant? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So I'm curious about how you got interested in police work as a profession. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I was, uh, I was fascinated by cops when I was little. I thought they were like superheroes or knights. And, uh, they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think if you do it right, they can be. Um, and yeah. as I got older, I, I did some jobs outside of law enforcement, but that pull towards being a cop always stayed with me. Um, and I grew up in a household that emphasized service. Uh, my dad is a minister, and my mom is a was a fourth grade school teacher. Oh. And I figured that becoming a police officer would be a it'd be a real job, it'd be a tangible job, and a good way to a good way to serve. And uh, I wanted to stand up to bullies and protect people. And, uh, you know, police seem like a pretty steady gig. It's a lot of job security, not much chance of the cop job being outsourced. And uh, to be honest, the, the adrenaline part of it, the kicking down doors and chasing after felons, uh, appealed to me. Uh, I'm, I'm 46 now, and I've been at this coming up on 19 years, so I don't kick down uh, quite as many doors or run down as many cooks myself these days, but... I'm a supervisor, so I just direct the younger cops to do it, and then I help them out with the police report. And as an English major, police reports are right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> and they're long, aren't they? They can be, sure. Like a yeah. term paper sometimes. Exactly. I'm thinking more like a dissertation. I can, right. I can see a resistance to writing them. <laughs> yep. Well, um, so how many people do you have um, under your guidance, I'll say? Uh, at any given day, there may be uh, between 10 and 20 cops that I'm uh, supervising, and there's sometimes another sergeant with me. Okay. Every time I see a police officer in, in San Francisco, I go up to him or her and I say, thank you so much, and they look at me like they're shocked. <laughs> we don't get a lot of that. You don't? No. And, when you know, when people say it, and if it seems sincere, that, uh, I mean, that's nice. That means a lot. Oh, I truly mean it, because I don't know yeah. what would happen without all of you. So, Adam, is there such a thing as a typical day on the job? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Not 
Not really. In the in the Mission District where I work, there some things you can count on. There's going to be a fair amount of street crime and homeless-related issues, but each day is kind of its own animal. I mean, the, the interesting thing about police work is, you know, one minute you might be responding to a, a, a violent carjacking, and then the next call you're, you know, you're helping a disabled person who's stuck in the middle of the street because their battery-powered wheelchair ran out of juice. Uh, there might be uh, 30 calls for service pending uh, on the board when you start your shift, or there might just be three. Uh, you know, bad weather tends to keep people at bay, um, cold or rain. And Sunday mornings tend to be a little quieter and sort of holidays, but that's not, that's not a given either. One of my favorite Thanksgiving memories is this suspect who got really drunk, uh, urinated all over the family turkey, and then chucked it through the dining room window. Oh. So there's, uh, yeah, there's basically there's no telling anything goes. But that's oh one of the reasons I like the job. Every day gives you a little something different. <laughs> Variety is the spice of life, right? Yes, it is. Um, could you give us a little summary of what the Mission District in San Francisco is like? Because I can tell you and the listeners from my own minute experience, it's not an area where I want to hang out. Yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag. Um, it, uh, you know, there's... Uh, a heavy concentration of uh, homeless. Uh, there is a, a lot of street-level drug dealing. Um, there's a pretty serious gang problem. Um, but, you know, it's uh, sort of little this, little that. There's, uh, you know, there's a lot of good people in the mission. They're just trying to raise their kids and live right. Um, the Castro District is part of the mission. Uh, there's uh, The tech industry has a, 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 a foothold there, so... You know, a lot of different folks from different walks of life all kind of bouncing off each other. It's, uh, it's an interesting mix. Yeah, I, yeah, it certainly is. <laughs> so the police at times are really involved in high-profile and controversial shootings. What do you think the public needs to understand about an officer's decision to use deadly force? This is in the news all the time. Yeah, I... Well, I think the first and foremost, people need to know that police shootings are are rare, uh, and you know, the, the SFPD did a five-year study of San Francisco officer-involved shootings um, that culminated in 2010, and they found that about one in 10,000 arrests resulted in officer-involved shootings. That's one in in 10,000, and that's you know, we're talking about arrests here, where you're trying to take someone's liberty away, which always brings with the prospect of violence. And, you know, I think more than that, you ask any street cop with some time in the job, and she'll tell you about a number of times that she could have justifiably used deadly force, but elected not to, either because of good training or just dumb luck. Um, you know, anytime we fire a weapon, it needs to be subject to intense scrutiny. We're supposed to uphold the sanctity of life whenever possible. You know, every shot we fire, we have to justify um, but sometimes cops make fatal miscalculations. You know, if it's at night under stress and when things move fast the way they do on the street, a wallet can look a heck of a lot like a gun. Um, sometimes there are officers that don't know how to use the equipment on their belt, so they panic or they just make a bad decision. Um, but regardless, you know, you have officers that may only have a second or two to make a deadly force situation, and then 
you know, critics and academics can sit in a quiet, orderly room with lots of charts and graphs and pick that situation apart and come up with all these alternative scenarios where the author should have done this or that. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, uh, bottom line, I wish people would sort of wait for the facts to come out before they decide that a shooting is unjustified. Um, you know, I've seen... What a uh, concept, uh, huh? Yeah, I mean, one of the videos that stays with me um, is I saw a, a training video once where they showed the police's guns drawn on a man armed with a handgun. And they ordered him to drop the gun, and he did. And then one of the officers shot him anyway. And on his mm. face, it looked terrible. But what that officer who fired his weapon saw, and what was borne out by evidence, is that while the suspect was dropping one gun, he was drawing another one from his waistband and pointing at the cops. Yeah. So that's why the officer's testimony, the officer who fired, that's the single most critical piece of information to any shooting case. And there are some people that have made up their minds about a shooting case before they hear what the officer has to say. And I, yeah. I don't think that's fair. Well, we're going to come back because we have to take a break. We are here with Adam Plantinga, and he is a sergeant uh, with the San Francisco Police Department in the Mission District. We will be right back. Last week, my party chief said he wanted to go someplace he had never been before. So I took him to the rear property line. Sound familiar? Are you tired of trudging all the way to the back of property lines? Why not take the steps to become a crew chief instead? Or even better, why not become a professional land surveyor and see your name stamped on that final survey? The Nettleman Institute of Land Surveying Engineering Technology is your next step. At NYSET, we believe you are the future of surveying, and we want to do everything we can to help you succeed at becoming a professional surveyor. NYSET offers the only online one-year certificate of land surveying program that includes all books, fees, and expenses in one simple price. Visit LandSurveyCareer.com to stop trucking through the mud and step into your future today. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. morning. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon-cutting ceremony, and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project. You can donate at jcvets.org. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. Today, we are having a relationship with a police officer whose name is Sergeant Adam Plantinga. And um, I hope that all of us really listen well, because I think for a police sergeant or a police officer to have a good relationship with the public depends a lot on the press, and I just wanted to comment, Adam, that, um, you know, using deadly force every time some um, criminal is shot, the press goes crazy, but when a police officer or sergeant or captain or whoever is shot and killed, it seems to me, from my narrow perspective, that it's like reported... Maybe the funeral is shown, and that's about it. Do I have the right take on that? Well, um, I, I do think that uh, when the police shoot a suspect, that that is inherently more, maybe more newsworthy, and that maybe in the eyes of uh, of a media outlet, because um, they want to see if it's if it's justified and what the factors were, because that. Um, that's the kind of thing that viewers gravitate towards. Um, so I, I certainly understand that impression. I, I do think that uh, if an officer is killed, I have seen certainly the community um, rise up and be with us. I was at the funeral for the four Oakland officers that were killed uh, several years ago uh, by the suspect Lavelle Mixon, and that, uh, that funeral took place in a packed arena. Uh, where I know that people took off work to come pay their respects, and that was very meaningful to us. Oh, good. Well, that says a lot. I hope that more communities do that. Now, I want to ask you about Black Lives Matter. What's your take on the movement? I, I think the typical street cop may see them as a kind of opposing force, but I don't. I don't know that that's fair. I. You know, if you belong to a group like African Americans that feels targeted and mar- marginalized, you're going to want to make some noise. I I get that. Um, I I do believe racism is threaded through every institution in our country, from mortgage lending to how kids are disciplined in schools. Um, you know, there there was a fairly high profile incident where some Black Lives Matters protesters in Minnesota were marching and they had a chant that went something like uh, you know, pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon, mm-hmm. in reference to cops and they certainly right. didn't do themselves any favors there uh, but I, I don't know that that represents the majority opinion of those folks um, you know that one of the things that I heard lately that I resonated with me is you know, this is a group that isn't saying only black lives matter or that Black Lives Matter more than other lives. They're merely saying Black Lives Matter. And I, you know, I think that's pretty hard to disagree with. Uh, the, the thing that I keep coming back to is that our job as cops and the jobs of district attorneys and judges is to achieve equal protection under the law. You know, justice for black and brown people should look just like justice for whites. And if that's not happening, if that's not happening, then groups like Black Lives Matter enter the arena and they draw our attention to that. I think that a lot of good can come of that. Okay, well, I, I really appreciate your opinion on that. I'm going to sneak in another question. What do you think, Have you or have you ever had any experience 
with the Antifa movement? You know, uh, they have made a big splash in Oakland and uh, in Berkeley, but uh, I can't say that I've run across too many of them, and uh, that's okay with me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're kind of scary. So in my professional life, I do fight the war on drugs, and as a police sergeant, what are your thoughts on the drug war? Well, I I can assure you the police are not winning that war. I don't even think it's close to a tie. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's a depressing business, especially the street-level drug trade. You've got, you know, you've got some inner-city kids who's living at poverty level, and they're eating mustard sandwiches and you know, maybe they want some money so they can buy shoes that don't have holes in them and maybe a hot meal and they don't have anyone in their life to tell them otherwise. So they sell drugs and what they're selling, the, the crack and the meth, it's, it's so corrosive. It wrecks whole city blocks. I've seen that. Uh, and, you know, even when you have a win, even say you take down an organized drug crew, they are often replaced by another one. And maybe that second crew is even more erratic and violent than the first. So it's like all you've done here is create a job opening for someone worse. Uh, you know, I know that drug use fuels so many of the crimes out there, whether it's the, the guy who's breaking into your car uh, to get the 75 cents you have in your center console, that 75 cents you didn't have before, uh, to the gal on the corner who's turning tricks to support her her drug habit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I you, you cannot arrest your way out of the drug problem, that much I know. It's got to be a partnership between drug treatment programs and court order rehab and the like. Uh, but, you know, I wish I had more answers. I, I think overall the tendency is for cops to see addicts as criminals, you know, to see them as less than, to see them as sort of the other. But these days, especially with the opioid crisis being what it is, you know, addicts are going to surface among your friends and your loved ones. They're going to surface among your police coworkers. And I've had friends on the job who got hooked on pills, and some of them got fired, and one or two went to jail. Uh, yeah. Drug abuse, you know, it cuts across class lines and affects absolutely everyone. Absolutely. And, and listeners, I've written a book about that, getting your team past the opioid epidemic. So... Um, it is a huge, huge problem, and for those of you who don't know, there's a uh, public transportation called BART, B-A-R-T, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, I have seen uh, cocaine use right on the escalator that, t- that takes one from the street level down to the BART train tracks, and... Uh, it's kind of scary, and I don't even know what to do about it. And that's what I do for—that's part of what I do for a living. So I'm with you. I get it. Um, so, Sergeant, have there been recent changes in technology that help you with your job? Uh, most certainly, you you see it. Uh, you see it, for instance, in some of the the toys that uh, SWAT has. So, for instance, if they have to. Uh, if they have to breach a door and go in after a suspect, they can now use these uh, explosive water charges. So when the door blows, it doesn't hurt the suspect. It just gets them sort of wet. Uh, I was at a scene not long ago where a SWAT was trying to see if there was an armed suspect still uh, barricaded in an apartment and to see if that person was an active threat. And instead of just uh, barging in and inviting a shootout, 
what they did is they, uh, this sounds kind of science fiction-y, but they, they tossed this little mini robot through a window of the apartment. <laughs> and this robot, and this robot was on sort of a gyroscope, so it could maneuver right through the rooms of the apartment with a camera mounted on it. And we could see a real-time video view of the scene. So, and that showed us that the suspect had actually taken his own life, so it was safe for the officers to go in. Um, you know, and cops have more tools to work with now. We have uh, ballistic shields. Uh, there are shot spotter sensors placed throughout the city that allow us to respond uh, directly to shooting scenes without waiting for a 911 call. Uh, you wouldn't have seen most of that tech even uh, uh, 10 years ago. But the, the biggest thing... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that is totally amazing and... I'm so glad that all of you have some upgraded techniques. Yeah, I, I think the one uh, the one change in technology uh, that's made a big impact is body cameras. Uh, you know, the San Francisco Police Department has body cameras; they're mounted on our chests, and video evidence is great evidence. Uh, juries love it, and you know, when cops are on video, we tend to be on our best behavior. And that's, you know, I think that's, that's what we all want. We want cops on our best behavior. Uh, it makes us accountable. It can help uh, clear police officers from false complaints of misconduct, and it shows criminals for what they are. And there's been a trend, uh, at least in California, and perhaps in other jurisdictions, that after police departments use body cameras, uh, use of force incidents and citizen complaints tend to drop pretty significantly. And there's certainly something to be said for that. Um, you know, body-worn cameras aren't, aren't everything. They're not perfect. They do have some limitations, and they raise some privacy issues. But they're a great tool, um, and I think a really good start. Well, good. Uh, and we're coming up on a hard break in about a minute and a half. But I'm curious to know what kind of training that you get in dealing with the mentally ill, because I deal with folks who are not only addicts but have a history of trauma and other mental health challenges. So could you begin that? And I might have to interrupt you. Sure. You know, in the past, not a lot of training, but there's been a, a real emphasis and increase in mental health training for cops. Uh, there's a there's a one-week course that SFPD uh, is looking to send all their officers through uh, to certify them as crisis intervention trained, or CIT is the acronym. And I've been to that, and it's just outstanding. Uh, you know, that's a class where you learn... For instance, the signs that someone might be on the autism spectrum, mm-hmm. and if they are, to, to tell them you're a police officer because even though you're in full uniform, they may not recognize you're a cop. Yeah. Uh, you learn that in suicide prevention, small steps are the key. So if you have someone on a ledge threatening to jump and their back is to you, then maybe you can't get them to come off the ledge right away. But if you can, if you ask just to see if they will turn around and face you and talk to you, so that's a win because, you know, positive small steps can lead to the, you know, to the positive bigger steps. Now I'm going to and have then, to interrupt this. Um, oh, sure. Because we have a hard break. And listeners, we will be right back with Sergeant Adam Plantinga in just a few moments. 
Merry Christmas. I'm Patty Levan, owner of Multiland Mortgage Services, Inc. We've partnered with nationally known wholesale lenders throughout the country that offer a wide variety of home loan programs. We can find the right home loan that will suit your financial needs. Multiland Mortgage Services, your way home. Call us at 941-201-9111 or check out our website at multilandmortgage.com. Company founded by Joseph P. Powers, NMLS 158-989, licensed in Georgia and Florida. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show? Talk about your business or express your opinion on America's Web Radio. Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We are here with Officer Plantinga. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that better and better as time goes on. And... I want to switch from the mentally ill issue we were talking about to your books. You've written two books about the job, as I said in your introduction. I want to know, because I'm curious about this, how have your fellow officers received your writing? Yeah, I was uh, I was wondering how that was going to go, but they've, <laughs> they've been kind. They've been kind all in all. Some of them have even bought the books and asked me to sign them. Uh, some of them I actually wrote about in the books. Uh and I think it helps that I wrote both books, not looking to embarrass anyone, you know, other than myself. I'm fine with embarrassing <laughs> myself. Uh, and then I, I, I front load the fact that these books aren't just made up of wisdom. I just naturally figured out myself, but are the result of me uh, taking good notes when I saw smart cops uh, say and do smart things. Uh, but, you know, police culture being what it is, though, there's been some, uh, been some good-natured ribbing. Uh, I remember not long after my first book, 400 Things Cops Know, came out, I was at work, and I, uh, I parked my car in the lot, and it was uh, it was a nice sunny day out, so I left the windows open about a third of the way and went inside to do something, I don't know, paperwork, and in the interim, it, it rained quite a bit, and the cop that had to use that car next found themselves with a pretty wet interior, yes. and so one of them one of them got on the radio and asked me, Hey, uh, hey, rolling up the windows when it rains, shouldn't that be one of the 400 things cops know? <laughs> I thought that, uh, that was a pretty good line. I love it. Where can yeah. listeners purchase your books? 
Well, if you go to a bookstore that is big enough to have its own uh, true crime section, uh, mm-hmm. odds are you'll find uh, one or both of them on the shelves. Uh, or you can get it online at Amazon or through Barnes & Noble. Uh, or, you know, you can just go to the library and possibly get it for free. I, I strongly believe people should go to libraries more than they do. Libraries I are good. Understand. Yeah, but this might be a book people would like to own. I think I would. What's the basic message of your first book, 400 Things Cops Know? Besides rolling well, I wrote up the window. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, I wrote it to be uh, sort of an insider's look uh, into urban police work. I don't think most people know uh, what cops do all day or what the job looks like or what it feels like. And the book covers those kind of things. Um, it's, it's broken down into chapters with titles like Tactics and Hazards and Shots Fired and Working with the Public. And it has a, has a bullet point format with lots of anecdotes and facts and reflections. And I have been told that it is a good toilet read. <laughs> you can pick it up in the uh, in the old bathroom and then set it down to read later without missing a beat. <laughs> I uh, I think that's a compliment. I not not entirely sure, but I'll t- I'll take it. <laughs> now let's talk about your second book for a moment, and it's called Police Craft. What is it that you really hope readers get out of that book? Well, I, I wrote it because I had more to say. Um, you know, police work is a a rich profession, and there's a lot. Uh, involved in it. So, uh, Priestcraft is it's sort of a sequel to 400 things, but I didn't want to write, you know, 400 more things, cops know. So, mm-hmm. I gave it a wider scope, and I think it's more ambitious than the first one. It has a short essay format, um, and it weighs into some sort of hot button uh, issues with more depth, like uh, use of force and race relations. Um, yeah. I was in investig. Yeah, I was I was in investigations for a time, so there's a an added emphasis on interrogations and evidence. And then the book also spotlights uh, specialty units like SWAT, uh, homicide, and the bomb squad. And I sat down with members of those units and interviewed them about some of the interesting aspects of their work. So it's it's much more of a collaborative effort uh, than the first book. And uh, also in Policecraft, I got to single out and honor some cops on both the departments I've worked for. You know, I wrote about their bravery and achievements and just general all-around excellence. And these are certainly men and women who will not sing their own praises, so I got to do it for them. And I really like that part of it. Yes, and, and I found when I go up to a policewoman or a policeman, I'll call them an officer, I say I thank them for their service, and they some of them are really shocked, but I honestly mean it. So yeah. there's so much about your job that the public doesn't know, like me, and I'm so grateful. Maybe I'm grateful that I don't know it, but I'm really grateful for when I feel protected, especially when I'm in San Francisco, because it's not as safe as it used to be in, in my yeah. vision, my experience. But well, we appreciate those kind words. We really do. Yeah, well, they're really heartfelt, and I wish um, more of more listeners and more of the public would thank the law enforcement that you see in and about your streets. Now, Adam, what's the best part of your job? I'm curious about that. You know, I think it's a it's a righteous job if you do it right. Um, 
the, the thing I like about it is as a cop, you're right in the middle of the national conversation about justice and race and immigration and poverty, and you get kind of the insider's view. You get to sort of uh, pull back the curtain and see how things work. And you know, you're part of a legitimate effort to make your community safer. You know, there's some bad guys who are locked away in state prison because, you know, because you put them there. Um, and I take a lot of stock in that. Uh, the other thing I like about the job is that it's challenging. You know, one of my old partners on the Milwaukee Police Department used to say, you know, it's a tough job, but, but that's okay. You wouldn't want something. That was easy. And I think he was right about that. I, I like a job where I really feel like I earned my time off. And, I, I know, you know, I, I, I relish... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I... I I really relish my coworkers. They're some of the toughest, funniest, smartest folks I've ever had the pleasure to know, and they've taught me a lot. And I'm I'm proud to serve with them. And what a what a lucky thing! And I'm also wanting to know what's the worst part of your job. I, I would think there would be a lot of parts to that answer. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, for me, probably for many if not most cops is seeing uh, violence against kids um, mm-hmm. seeing children in pain seeing you know seeing dead children I will never get used to that I feel like if I did something would be wrong with me mm-hmm. um, and I, I remember once I had to look at some child pornography as part of an investigation and when I went home that night I climbed into bed with my wife and I just cried uh, you know it was just representative of such brokenness I couldn't uh, I couldn't process it and that's why I think the officers and men and women on police departments who work in, you know, crimes against children cases uh, and child pornography cases, I think they're all going to get a softer pillow in heaven. I, I, I am a trauma therapist, so part of what I do in my career is I listen to people's traumas. And I can relate to what you just said because I'm currently leading a trauma group now where I work, and I've, I've just heard like two of the worst traumas I've heard in my 20 years of doing this work. And uh, I, it, it, one of the traumas has really kept me awake at night, and it's really important, and I'm going to come to this closer to the end of our time together this morning, um, is how do first responders take care of themselves, because it's so important. But yeah. I'm going to table that for uh, a little later in our program, and I'm going to ask you, what do you think is the biggest misunderstanding people have about police work? Well, I think there's a perception out there, I think particularly people who are tend to be anti-police, that, you know, cops are sort of one-dimensional, trigger-happy bullies who took the job because they didn't want to go to school past the 12th grade. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you that ain't so. Uh, mm-hmm. Law enforcement is a—it's a volatile, highly challenging field, and you have to draw on some skills you have, and, and some some you're still working on. You know, at any given moment, you need to be a—you need to be a psychologist, you need to be a street lawyer, you know, a, a counselor, a, a marksman, and even with all of those skills, you're still going to run into some situations where there's just any best practices for. Uh, uh, I do think the public can have unrealistic expectations of what a police department can actually do. 
you know, for instance, during the day, there's about a million and a half people running around San Francisco with a daily average of about 150 cops to police them. You know, yeah. some some folks are gonna some folks are gonna get away with it. That's just how it goes. Yeah. Um, and we're you know we're not perfect. We aren't always as careful with our words as we should be, and sometimes we go at people too hard, sometimes too soft. But it's an honorable profession, and I'm glad I chose it. Mm-hmm. I had uh, a speeding ticket given to me. Oh, maybe about four or five years ago. And I deserved it. And I uh, didn't have my driver's license with me because I was coming back from the gym. And uh, the policeman uh, stopped me. He was a motorcycle police person. And he was so angry. But what really flipped him out is when I got out of the car to ask him if he wanted me to call my husband to bring me my driver's license. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I got the lecture. Do you know how many police shootings there are? Do you realize how we're in danger we are? And so this is sort of a, a fear response that I picked up on. And uh, so I wouldn't say that that was good PR, but I also say I deserved it. <laughs> well, I'm, I think the officer may have been able to handle that a bit better. But I will say this, you know, when you pull over somebody... That traffic stop is a great unknown. You don't know if you're pulling over, you know, a wanted felon or if you're pulling over, you know, your fourth grade piano teacher. There's there's no way to know. Right. And, you know, you you know you're a decent law-abiding person, but the officer has no way of knowing that. And some yeah. of the most polite criminals are some of the most lethal. Um, yes. So, yeah, we are always on our guard. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about community policing as a way to better establish relationships between police and society. And first, what exactly is community policing? And next, is it true that it helps to establish better relationships? And in two minutes, we're coming up on a hard break. So okay. we'll start with the answers to that question. Uh, yeah, so community policing is, is policing with emphasis on just having officers get to know folks in a neighborhood to better help them out with their problems. Um, and, uh, you know, it can get kind of a bad rap because some cops equate it with just handing out crime prevention flyers and being sort of social work instead of arresting folks. But it's, it's really all about building trust. Um, you know, that's you, you got to build trust because if the public doesn't believe in you, you know, you might as well just fold up shop because you aren't going to get anywhere. You know, why would someone want to be a witness and testify in court? Or tell you which way a suspect fled if they don't uh, if they don't trust you. You know, it, it, it's basically getting out of your patrol car and talking with folks, getting to know them, because the neighborhood's contact with you has to be more than simply knowing you as their arresting officer. You know, you need to build that kind of familiarity, those kind of partnerships, and you know, just try what, anything you can do to reduce tension in the neighborhood. So you have cops that are, you know doing camping trips and sports programs with kids, you know, giving away turkeys on Thanksgiving, uh, having trick-or-treat parties on Halloween. Just things to let people know that the cops aren't the enemy. We're going to have to take a break. And listeners, we are here with Sergeant Adam Clentinga, Clentinga, and we will be right back after this break. It goes pretty fast, doesn't it? Oh, man, it does. Mm-hmm. 
Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. Happy Holidays! I'm Patty LeVan, owner of Multiline Mortgage Services, Inc. Call us for details about our conventional loans with as little as 3% down or talk to us about our FHA, VA, and USDA loan options. We answer your questions with honesty and integrity because that's how we roll. Multiline Mortgage Services, your way home. Call us at 941-201-9111 or check out our website at multilinemortgage.com. Company founded by Joseph D. Powers, NMLS, You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, listeners. We are here with Sergeant Adam Plantinka. Did I pronounce that right, Adam? I think I'm absolutely right in the money. No, you okay. Good, 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 good. Now, uh, we were talking about community relationships. And you know this is Dr. Ian's Relationship Radio. So do you have anything you want to add to where you were before the break? Yeah, I, I, you know, there's community policing is where you want to be, you know. Um, but there's a couple of challenges that come with it. Uh, one of them is that you know, there's some relations that, may not be improved. You know, you're dealing with some families that have three generations of felons in them and maybe poorly educated. Uh, they think the system is out to get them. They think you're out to get them. And it's going to be tough to win them over. Um, you know, you got to try, but it's hard. Uh, and the other thing that can be frustrating is, you know, there are times when you can't do all the community policing you'd like to do because in a busy city with a high crime rate, you may just be going from A priority call to A priority call. And you don't have a lot of time to, you know, to chit out the neighbors because people are getting stabbed and robbed all over the place. You need to respond to those calls. So, uh, you know, you do what you can, but a lot of times it's sort of schedule permitting. Now, thank you for that work. I'm also curious, what are your views and other police officers' views, those that you know, uh, about gun control? Yeah, I... <clears throat> I think most cops would agree on some basic tenets of gun control, but, you know, might disagree on things like concealed carry for citizens. Uh, you know, a lot of cops are NRA members. Um, you know, the police know that people have the right to defend themselves, and they can't always count on the police to do that. I've, uh, I've seen bumper stickers that say something like, you know, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. And I don't like saying it, but there's no small amount of truth to that. No, um, I know. And, you know, I also believe that the old saw that no matter how strict you make gun laws, you know, determined criminals will still get their hands on guns. Uh, 
Um, but I don't think that means you should just throw your hands up in despair. I think the stakes are too high for that. You know, um, I think eliminating bump stocks was sort of a no-brainer. Um, and, you know, with this, with this, um, these rash of school shootings, which are so devastating, um, yeah. you know, I, I, I get intrigued by laws in the books that restrict the magazine capacity on assault rifles to just a few rounds, like how duck hunters are only allowed three-shot clips in some states. Um, and that's really, you know, that's the seesaw between individual gun rights and public safety. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's a delicate balance because you don't want to punish law-abiding people who own assault rifles. Um, a lot of cops own them, a lot of people in the military own them, and those are the people you want those weapons to have. Um, but, you know, I, I would like to add that I think one of the best forms of gun control is aggressive police work, which includes stop and frisks in dangerous neighborhoods. You know, I worked street crimes for years, and I saw that up close. If a felon thinks there's a strong likelihood that an officer is going to pat him down when he's slinging dope on the corner, he's going to think twice about keeping that pistol in his waistband. So I've seen that work. I believe in that. Yeah, it's interesting to me how the perception of gun control is, is presented to society because I'm way more interested in how to get guns away from criminals than I am about how to get guns away from law-abiding citizens. And exactly. And the dialogue yeah. is more about how to get it away from uh, law-abiding citizens, and I take issue with that, not that anybody cares. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I care. I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I live in a very safe... Well, you don't know. Well, yeah, you do know. I live in a very safe community, but I'm not feeling so safe anymore because... Uh, there's been a lot of burglaries where I live, and just uh, two times in this last month, one of our cars was rifled through, mm-hmm. and I didn't even call the police because what can they do about it? And so I just, like, I don't know, I got a ring doorbell. <laughs> you know, I think that kind of thing can be uh, can be pretty effective. Yeah. You know, just trying to sort of... Just sort of trying to target hard in your house, you know. If a crook sees that, they'll probably move on to a one that uh, doesn't have as much security. Well, I hope that's true. But coming from you, then I, I have some faith that it's true. Now, yeah. we we have about I don't know seven or so more minutes, and I I cannot end this program uh, with you without addressing my concerns about safety for police officers. I am so like adamant about this, and I feel so scared for all of you and I don't even really know any police officers would you share with our listeners your feelings and thoughts about law enforcement safety you know my uh, when my mom heard that I had been accepted to the police academy she was concerned she wanted me to do something safer um, I don't know maybe be a golf caddy or something but uh, <laughs> I told her I told her I was going to be the safest guy in the city because I'd have a handgun, I'd have a shotgun, I'd have a ballistic vest, you know, a radio, uh, good training, and the ability to summon a lot of help uh, on the radio if I needed to. And I don't know if she bought that, but it sounded good. Uh, you know, any time there's an officer fatality, it's investigated in and out. And you never want to speak ill of the dead, but there are lessons to be learned in such cases. 
and the findings are that with the majority of officer deaths, the officer made at some point uh, some sort of tactical error. So the smart cop doesn't blindly charge around corners after an armed felon. So the thinking cop waits for backup, um, teamwork, and uh, wise tactics can save a lot of police lives, and training keeps getting better. Um, and, and that being said, you know, you can use the best tactics in the world and still come up on the short end of things. But mm-hmm. I think most cops think, you know, that's what you signed up for when you became a cop. No one made you do that. That's part of the package. That's part of the deal. And if we don't like it, we can always leave and do something else. But uh, this is what we signed on for. I don't know. Um, uh, is that? Do you think that that's what most people think? I uh, officer. Yeah, you know, and one of the things I like most about the job is that I've been in some nasty situations. My partners have. And I have never seen an officer shirk from danger. I've never seen them not go into a hot scene because they were scared. Um, it just becomes sort of second nature. Uh, and if you're, you know, police work isn't for anyone. If you can't do that, the job is not for you. But you need people that are willing to do that. Now, um, I also want to say and let you know that, uh, and, and our listeners know that I treat many first responders. And, man, I hear the trauma that my patients carry with them in the way of memories and aromas and death scenes and the like, kind of what you mentioned earlier. How do you take care of you? Well, I uh, I married well. Um, <laughs> far, far above my station. Uh, my wife, <laughs> yeah, she centers me. Um, I have two young daughters who, uh, when I'm not taking their wet clothes up off the bathroom floor, uh, amuse and and delight me. Um, And that makes all the difference. It helps me recharge for the next work day. Uh, You know, I I try to take care of myself, to eat well, exercise, um, get enough rest. You know, some cops like to brag about working on only a few hours of sleep, but I think that's foolish. Uh, I heard Mm -hmm. someone say recently that you should manage your sleep like you manage your money. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that saying. Um, I also don't drink. I never have. That probably doesn't mm-hmm. hurt. Uh, but I have, you know, I have a real long and deep support network. Um, not just my immediate family, but my parents, my brother, um, my sister-in-law. You know, I remember when I started with the Milwaukee Police Academy, and when I graduated, every single member of my family bought a Milwaukee Police Department T-shirt and took a family photo with it. And I thought, you know what? That's just flat out awesome. It's nice to it have is. that kind of kind of backing because not all cops have that. So I really yeah. I don't take that for granted. Um, I'm glad that you are taking care of yourself. <clears throat> I, I like to think that my patients who are first responders do that too, but it seems like the trauma gets pervasive, and then they need some treatment. Yeah. So it's out there uh, for your friends who are listening. Now, lastly, over the past few years, I've noticed that what used to be a fairly simple domestic violence call has often become a life-or-death proposition for the officers answering the call. Do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, domestic violence calls are a, they're a bad business. Um, yep. You know, when you have relationships go sideways, you know, reason is running low, emotions are running high, 
and all of that means that domestic violence suspects are some of the most dangerous and unpredictable folks that you're going to come across. Um, I've seen them answer the door with a gun in hand. Um, I've, I know that they'll grab a knife and try to go out and hail a bullet, the classic sort of suicide by cop approach. Oh. And I think if you ask an officer how many critical incidents she's been at where she shot a suspect or came close to it, odds are that uh, a decent number of those will be domestic violence related. Um, one of the things they teach you on the job is that, uh, you know, in a lot of DV calls, you show up and one of the other, one or more of the parties are in the kitchen. And as a cop, you hate the kitchen because there's yeah. just so many things in there that yeah. could hurt you or your partner or the victim. And it's not just the sharp knives. It's, it's, we're talking hot grease, yeah. you know, heavy yeah. frying pans, freshly yeah. brewed coffee. My, uh, my partner and I once took an assignment where a woman cut up her boyfriend's face with a frozen chicken leg. Well, but, uh, on that note, <laughs> Officer Platinga, it's just been such an honor to have you on Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. Are, are we are we ending on frozen chicken legs? Cause I we think are ending on frozen chicken legs. I think it's a good place <laughs> to end, actually, because right. it's such a great visual. <laughs> so um, your program will be archived on America's Web Radio in a couple of days so that listeners can listen to it again and again and invite their friends to listen as well. And I thank you so much for being my guest tonight. Really, I pray for your safety and those of all your fellow officers. Listeners? Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Listeners, be sure to listen to next week's program about transitions. I will be making an announcement about a transition of my own, and we will be having a conversation with a guest about how it was for him to make a huge transition in his life. And until then, remember, only you can make your world the way you want it to be. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.